Psalm 119, verses 89 to 96. 119, 89. Here we'll see that we are taught to live this life for the next. Live this life for the next. Forever, O Lord, your word is settled in heaven. Your faithfulness continues throughout all generations. You establish the earth and it stands. They stand this day according to your ordinances, for all things are your servants. If your law had not been my delight, then I would have perished in my affliction. I will never forget your precepts, for by them you have revived me. I am yours, save me, for I have sought your precepts. The wicked wait for me to destroy me. I shall diligently consider your testimonies. I have seen a limit to all perfection. Your commandment is exceedingly broad. Our Father, we pray that you'll show us from this word, as David, the man of God, believed, that he should live this life for the next, that we will have our hope fixed on eternity so that we are able to experience whatever we experience in this life by your grace, by your spirit, and enduring until the very end. In the name of Christ, amen. When we think about this life and the next life, there are a few adages or common sayings that we find in our society that trip us up and confuse us. Sometimes people will say that Christians should not be so heavenly minded that they are of no earthly good. We should not be heavenly minded so that we're not of any earthly good. Well, that adage misunderstands the issues. It misunderstands the issues very severely that when we are truly heavenly minded, we are of imminent earthly good. We are of imminent value here on the earth, both to ourselves and to the people around us. We are of value. Another one is there's only one life or uh, let's eat and drink for tomorrow we may die. People say those kinds of things. We just have one life and so live it up. Be, be whatever you want to be, have and enjoy whatever you want, because the next life, um, we won't be here, we won't be on this world, in this world anymore, and they assume that everything will be just fine and happy and dandy for them in the life to come, without any preparation. They live it up now, and they think that when they die, everything will be just fine. And then the third one is to having our best life now. Best life now, let's have it now, and enjoy life with health and wealth and prosperity, enjoyment and pleasure to the full. Whatever you want, whatever you desire. And you can even use the name of God, even use the name of Christ, in order to obtain whatever you want right now. And they don't think about eternity, or they think that everything will be happy and sweet and pleasant for everybody for all eternity, because there is no hell, or hell is temporary, or something or like that that they believe. Or that we will all just be annihilated, ceasing to exist upon death. So don't worry about heavenly and eternal things because this is what actually will happen. However, Christ does not agree with any of these things. Christ and those who are his disciples, those who name the name of Christ, cannot believe in any of these things. Because all of this is false. According to Christ, we should be living for the life to come. According to Christ, the life to come is all that matters. And we are here in this life in preparation for the life to come. According to Christ, we should be living for God's kingdom. He said, seek first His kingdom and His righteousness, and all these things shall be added to you. 
We should not be anxious about what we're going to wear, what we're going to eat, how long we're going to live, and things of that nature. We shouldn't be anxious. In Matthew 6, 25 to 34, Jesus warned us not to be anxious about any of these things. And instead, he said, seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added to you. That is, seek for the kingdom of God, seek, seek for eternal things, ensure that you are saved from your sins, ensure that you truly believe in the gospel of Christ, you believe that Jesus came into the world to die for you as a sinner, and he rose from the dead for you to give you eternal life. Believe in these things for sure, and then the rest of the things that happen in this world, God will take care of them. You don't have to be worried, don't be bothered, don't shake your head and worry here and there. Don't abandon the faith. Don't be doubting the gospel. Don't doubt the Bible. Don't have any of those things happen to you. Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added to you. Jesus believed that we ought to use this life and prepare in this life for the life to come. And this is also what David believed. David was a man of God. David was a righteous man. He was a prophet as well. And he knew that Jesus would die for his sins. 1,000 years before Jesus actually did it, David believed in Jesus Christ. Because he believed in Jesus Christ, he had his hope set on eternity. And the word of God, he knew, was for the purpose of preparing him for eternity. This is what he says in the first three verses of our text today. In verses 89 to 91, he compares the word of God and heaven to this world and the purposes of this world. Look at verse 89. Forever, O Lord, your word is settled in heaven. Forever. The word of the Lord is settled or stands firm in heaven. This word, yes, we have access to it now, but it is settled or stands firm in that it has eternal consequences and it is something that will not pass away. This is what Jesus even said in Matthew 24, 35. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words shall not pass away. Jesus' words, which are also the words of the Old Testament, according to 1 Peter chapter 1, 10 to 12, the Spirit of Christ was in the prophets, and David was one of the prophets. The Spirit of Christ was in the prophets. So these words, even the words of David, are the words of the Spirit of Christ. And Jesus is saying whether in Matthew 24, 35, or right here, that his words are settled in heaven. They stand firm in heaven. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. 1 Peter 1, 22 to 25. The word of our God stands forever. The word of our God lasts forever. So, this means that we ought to, if the word of God stands forever, we ought to know what this is if we care for ourselves. Do we not care for our souls? Do we not care about where we will spend eternity? Do we not want to make sure, have full assurance and confidence that we are saved from our sins, that we will not experience the wrath of God, that instead we will experience heaven and eternity instead of hell and eternal punishment? We want that. We want assurance of that. We want confidence in that. Well, that comes from the Word of God and all the promises that the Word of God makes. The Word of God makes these promises so that it holds out this hope and peace and comfort to us that we might believe in it and believe in it wholeheartedly and forever. This is what we ought to do. When we do this, then we live this life in light of eternity. We live this life because we know that there is eternal life and we prepare ourselves for it. 
1 John chapter 3. 1 John chapter 3, verse 1. See how great a love the Father has bestowed upon us that we should be called children of God, and such we are. For this reason the world does not know us, because it did not know Him. Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not appeared as yet what we shall be. We know that when He appears, we shall be like Him, because we shall see Him just as He is. And everyone who has this hope fixed on Him purifies himself just as He is pure. Verse 1, see, if this is an amazing thing, that the Father bestowed such great love upon us, that we should be called His children. This is a privilege to be called His children. Hebrews 11 says, God is not ashamed to be called our God, because He's prepared a city for us. He's given us these things, these names, children of God, people of God. Verse 2, He says, Beloved. He, we are loved by God in this way, as His children. If God has given all these things to us, and we know that when He appears, when Christ appears, we shall be like Him, for, because we shall see Him just as He is, we will change immediately and instantly, miraculously, from mortality to immortality, from being prone to death, and, and then not experiencing death at all and forever. Now we cry and weep and have pain, but at that time, He will wipe every tears from our eyes and we will be with Him forever. Where there is harmony, there's peace, there's no more evil, there's no more death and destruction, no more disease, nothing like that. We, we shall be like Him when we see Him just as He is. So that's what He sets out before us, just like David. Forever, O Lord, your word is settled in heaven. I know your heavenly promises. I know your eternal goodness that you have awaiting me to experience. But what to do in the meantime? Verse 3, 1 John 3, 3. And everyone who has this hope, everything we've just said, everyone who has this hope fixed on him purifies himself just as he is pure. If we have this hope, we will purify ourselves because when we see Him, we don't want to shrink away from Him in shame. When we see Him, we don't want Him to say that we are a wicked and lazy slave. When, when we see Him, we don't want Him to say, depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. We don't want Him to say, I never knew you. We want Him to be delighted in us. We want Him to say, well done, good and faithful slave. We want Him to say, enter into the kingdom of your Father. We want Him to say those kinds of things to us, but what does it require? It requires purification. Everyone who has this hope fixed on Him purifies himself just as He is pure. Therefore, if we used to practice wickedness, and it used to harm ourselves, it used to harm our family, it used to harm our friends, it used to harm strangers, our wickedness used to harm people. But now that we're redeemed, and we seek for purification, we seek for holiness, we seek for godliness, we seek to be like Christ. Whatever things we did that used to harm ourselves and to harm others, don't harm them anymore. It don't, those things don't harm us anymore. So we are imminently useful to ourselves and other people because we're living for eternity. You see how those adages at the beginning make no sense in light of the Bible? They are not true according to the Bible. When we live for eternity, when we live for heavenly things, we are of earthly good. 
of more earthly good than anyone really understands and can imagine. The people of the world. They, they don't know us and they don't believe like us because they don't be, they understand these things. They don't have a new heart. They don't see what we see. But when we see the truths of the Bible, we purify ourselves and we are very practical and helpful and useful to all kinds of people. First for ourselves and then for everyone else. Because we know what life is really about. Verses 90 and 91. Your faithfulness continues throughout all generations. You established the earth and it stands. They stand this day according to your ordinances. For all things are your servants. God's faithfulness is known and is experienced throughout all generations. People can see and know, both physically and spiritually, the faithfulness of God. We know that God makes His reign to fall on the righteous and the wicked. We know that God makes the sun to rise in the east and it, and it sets in the west, and that people throughout the globe experience the benefits of the brilliant sun and the warmth and the heat of the sun. We know all of this, that whether it's the sun or whether it's the rain or many of the other privileges of life, the physical privileges of life, these things are happening because God is faithful and God, by His ordinances, by His laws that He has placed, the laws of nature are not the laws of evolutionary nature. The laws of nature are divine laws of nature. God has established, God has fixed these laws or ordinances so that nature functions the way it does, so that it benefits us. Now, David makes this comparison from the earthly things, the worldly things and earthly things that we see all around us. We see that God is faithful and He's faithful throughout all generations. When God is, shows Himself to be that... Should we not, therefore, think about eternity? Should we not, therefore, contemplate what our life is about? We know, and we can also see all around us, that people die, infants die, young children die, teenagers die, young men and women die. Some people die right after they get married, the one spouse or the other, or even both spouses, they die. Sometimes people have the privilege, in many cases, to live until they are 70 or 80 years old or even longer. We see that happening too. But we all know that death is imminent. It's all for everyone to experience. It is appointed for men to die once and after this the judgment, Hebrews 9.27. We know that. So if we can see God's faithfulness in life, and why is it that we live to be 20 or 30 or 40, 50 years old, but others don't. It has to do with God and His mercy towards us. We have to contemplate that. We must think about that. And then think about how this has to do with the faithfulness of God, the goodness of God, the grace of God toward us. So it should make us think about heavenly things. It should make us rise above the material and the temporary things of the world and think about heaven. Think about unseen and spiritual things Think about God's spiritual faithfulness. Think about how we are to be saved from our sins. How is it that we will meet God? What will happen when we meet God? What, is, what does the Bible say about that? What do other religions say about it? Compare those religions to the Bible and see which is true. You will find, as many have, that the Bible is true and the false religions of the world give a false hope and a false assurance. They are wrong. 
and they will lead to eternal destruction. But the Bible is true. Therefore, draw near to the Bible. Therefore, understand what the Bible says and the faithfulness of God that's found in the Bible. Note, too, that all the things of the world are for God's purposes. He says in verse 91, All things are your servants. All things. Jesus taught in Matthew 10 that the sparrows do not fall to the ground or die apart from your Father, apart from the Heavenly Father. The birds die because God appoints for them a time to die. Meantime, Matthew 6, He feeds them. He also said to us to encourage us to withstand persecution that He knows the very hairs of our head. They don't fall to the ground apart from our Father. If He knows those details, and He controls those details, He knows how many we have when we're born, how many we have hairs we have when we're 10 and 20 and older, He knows exactly. And He causes them to come out of our head according to His appointment. The number that fall out each day is according to His appointment. He's got all this under control. If He has all of this under control, For what purpose does God control human events and world events? How does He control everything? He controls all events so that we might seek Him. He controls everything so that we might know Him. Acts chapter 17. The Apostle Paul preaches in a foreign territory in Athens, in Greece, to people who worship idols, who are pagans. And he says this about God. Acts chapter 17, verse 22. Acts 17, 22. And Paul stood in the midst of the Areopagus and said, Men of Athens, I observe that you are very religious in all respects. For while I was passing through and examining the objects of your worship, I also found an altar with this inscription, To an unknown God. What therefore you worship in ignorance, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and all things in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands. Neither is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all life and breath and all things. And he made from one every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined their appointed times and the boundaries of their habitation, that they should seek God. Why did God control who was born where? what language he speaks, who his parents are, in what nation he's born. Why did God do all of this? It says in verse 27 that they should see God. If perhaps they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. He did this so that we might reach out and find him. And because he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and exist, as even some of your own poets have said. For we also are his offspring. Some of their own poets, some of their own philosophers and religious writers, in their own day, the Greeks, they knew that all of mankind are the offspring of God, in the sense that God created all of them. And if God created all of them, shouldn't we seek after God? Shouldn't we know who God is? And why does it do, do in verse 23, to have an altar to an unknown God? What's the point of saying that, yeah, there's this God out there, but He's an unknown God? You already know that He created you, so then now why are you keeping your arms, uh, stiff-arming God and saying He's unknown? 
Why don't you seek after him? Why don't you go find out about him? Paul says. And then he preaches the gospel and says that God has appointed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness, having furnished proof and having appointed a man that, and appointed him and furnished proof by raising him from the dead. Therefore, we ought to repent of sin and believe in God. You see how the Apostle Paul went from the physical to the spiritual? In the same way David is. David is saying, all things are the servants of God. We know that. The great God created the world. The Almighty God created the world. And if He created the world, then why not seek after Him? Why not find out more about Him? Why not learn of Him and understand who He is? For your own redemption, for the forgiveness of your sins. Verse 92. David has done so, and now he explains what his life is like. Verse 92. If your law had not been my delight, then I would have perished in my affliction. If God's law, if his word had not been the delight of David, if David did not enjoy reading and studying the Bible, if he did not enjoy hearing the truths of the Bible, if that had not happened in his life, then he would have perished in his affliction. He would have died. He would have died physically and he would have died spiritually. He would have died physically because sometimes many, many people in the world, when they experience afflictions, when they experience grief and anxieties, it's too much for them. They can't handle it. They go hide in a corner. They avoid people. They do this or that. They even, some of them, commit suicide. People do this, they perish in their affliction. They're too, so anxious about themselves and their own circumstance that they don't want anything to do with life. And why is that? Why is it that they perish in their affliction? They perish because they don't delight in the Word of God. They have no hope. They have no joy. They have no peace. They have no comfort. They have nothing that's going to console them whenever troubles happen in their life. They have nothing like that then they will perish. They will live a miserable life now, and then they will live a miserable eternity. Judas Iscariot experienced this. Remember Judas Iscariot. Judas Iscariot, he had many religious benefits. He was around Jesus Christ for at least three and a half years. He was around John the Baptist before that. And he had experiences, religious, in, in the synagogue, being raised in a Jewish society. He had all of that. And even... During the ministry of Jesus, he had more wealth than the rest of the apostles because he used to steal from their treasury. He had many of the things of this world, many of the religious and material things of this world in a way that others did not. But he knew he was a miserable man. And when he knew that he did wrong to betray Christ, he went out, he said, I have betrayed, uh, I am, uh, he says, I have betrayed innocent blood, and he went out feeling remorse and he went and hanged himself. This is what happens. We perish in our affliction when we do not delight in the Word of God. We must delight in the Word of God. It may not lead all of us to suicide. And God forbid that that happens to anyone who hears these words. But we should pursue God so that we not have death, we not have eternal punishment that awaits us, we will perish that way, just as Judas did. He perished both physically and eternally. May that not happen to us, because we delight in the Word of God. 
David did in such a way that he says in verse 93, I will never forget your precepts, for by them you have revived me. He says, I will never. He is resolved and determined never to forget the precepts of God. Of course, he is a man. He is a weak man, and sometimes he does. But he has this sincere and resolute heart to never forget the precepts of God. He never wants to forget whatever he's experiencing, whether he has abundance or whether he's in want, whether people like him and love him or whether people hate him, whether things are going his way or whether things are not going his way, whether he sees people and he is envious of them, he is envious of their prosperity or not, he says, I will never forget your precepts. He does not ever want to forget because he's reminded. He reminds himself, why would I give up God? Why would I kick the can? Why would I throw him overboard? Why would I do any of these things? Because he says, for by them, by the words of God, you have revived me. Why would I ever do that when I know the kind of wicked and selfish man I used to be? Why would I ever do that when I know that my life was miserable, I had no peace, I had no comfort, I had no hope, I had no forgiveness of sins, I was terrified of death, I was terrified of eternity. All these things tormented me before, but now they don't. I know what God has done in my life. He has given me consolation. He's given me hope. He has given me the assurance that I belong to Him. I'm forgiven of my sins. I don't live the way I used to live. The things that used to please me don't please me anymore. I used to indulge in this or that wickedness, but now I don't anymore, and I'm happy. I'm content. I have no desire to go back and to resort to that kind of wickedness. I know that you, by your words, you have revived me. You have given me life. You have given me life that I did not possess before. Not only does he explain the benefit, he also explains to whom he belongs. Verse 94. I am yours. Save me, for I have sought your precepts. Now he speaks of his relationship to God. Not just what God has given him, but who God is to him. I am yours. You are mine. Now I am your child. Now I am a part of your people. Now you consider me beloved. Now you consider me your sheep. Now you consider me your special and treasured possession. I am yours. This is who I am now. I was none of that before. I did not understand those things before. And I didn't care about those things before. But now I do. Now I know I belong to you. And it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter to whom else I belong. It, I don't care about fanfare. I don't care about fame and fortune and fun. I don't care about any of these things anymore. I belong to you. And as long as you are content with me, as long as you are pleased with me, as long as you are happy with me, as long as you will consider me your child, your people, your treasured possession, nothing else matters. Simply, he says, save me. Save me. I trust that because I belong to you, you will save me. He prays a short prayer, save me, which is in accordance with the will of God. This is the way we ought to pray. If we ask anything and it is in accordance with His will, He hears us. 1 John 5, 14. If we ask anything and it is in accordance with His will, He hears us. Save me. 
I know I am saved, but continue to save me is his prayer. Continue to save me and ultimately save me on that day when the Lord returns. This is the kind of salvation that I want. And I know that since I am in Christ, I will remain in Christ, I will abide in Christ, and I will remain in Christ until I see Christ face to face. Save me. A simple prayer. Prayer that should be a model for all of us. Save me. Save me from this crooked and perverse and adulterous and evil generation. Save me. Save me from myself. Save me from my own selfishness. Save me from my own pride. Save me from the things that I love to pursue. The things I love to hear and see. Save me from all these things because I belong to you. I'm a new man. I'm a new creation in Christ. So give me more of yourself. And the evidence of that. For I have sought your precepts. The evidence that David belongs to God and that God will, has saved him and will save him is that David has sought after the precepts of God. David can now look back on his life after the years that he has been converted, after the years that he understands that he belongs to God. He can look back at his life and say, I am a different man. I have sought your precepts. The way I used to be before Christ is not the way I am now. Now I long for you. Now I produce the fruit of the Spirit. Now I desire your word. Now I desire to be around the people of God. Now I desire to worship you with the people of God. Now I desire to know you more and more and to have you control my life more and more. I have sought your precepts. He's saying, I have material, real proof that I belong to you, Lord. This is what he's hoping in. Now, he's not hoping in it in terms of works righteousness. This is not works salvation. He's not saying, I have sought your precepts, and therefore, because I have worked for my salvation, I have done it for this number of years, or I've committed this great feat on your behalf, because I've done this, therefore, you ought to save me. He doesn't mean it that way. Already we have seen in previous messages, and even right here in this verse, I am yours. I belong to you because I belong to you and I re re request you to save me for I have sought your precepts. He's basically saying not that he's working for salvation, but he's saying he's working out his salvation. I am living according to your will. I am doing what your word teaches me to do. Verse 95. The wicked wait for me to destroy me. I shall diligently consider your testimonies. Living a righteous life will encounter persecution. Living a righteous life in word and in deed will mean that the world will not know us, as John said in 1 John 3. The world does not know us because it did not know Him. Because the world does not know Christ, it does not know us. Because the world does not understand Christ and the ways of Christ, they will not understand us. Therefore, the wicked, the wicked, unbelieving people of the world will wait for me to destroy me. They plot. They conspire. They're waiting around the bush. They wait in secret places in the dark. They wait for ways and they think of ways on their bed at night. Ways in order to destroy us the next day, early in the morning. This is what they do. Wicked people will do those kinds of things toward us. But have no fear. 
The Lord will bring us safely into his heavenly kingdom. The Lord will protect us. The Lord will give us deliverance from our enemies. They may destroy our bodies, but they will not destroy our souls. And God, through Christ, will raise our dead bodies, even those that have been tortured and put to death by our wicked enemies. They will ra- he will raise them up on the day of judgment, and we will have an immortal body that will be with our soul forever and ever. They wait in, for me, but I am not losing hope. And instead, I shall diligently consider your testimonies. That is, I will diligently, eagerly seek after the testimonies or the words of God that explain what my end will be, what my outcome will be, that I will have eternal life and resurrection, a glorification awaiting me. And in the meantime, I will live diligently and faithfully as best as I can by the Spirit of God and the Word of God to obey God's Word. I will not retaliate. I will not seek vengeance. I will not return evil for, for evil. I will seek to do that which is in accordance with your word. I will be patient with them. I will turn the other cheek. I will let happen whatever needs to happen because I will entrust myself to you, Lord, and I will wait for you. Verse 96. I have seen a limit to all perfection. Your commandment is exceedingly broad. David was very wise. David was very talented. He was a successful shepherd and a strong one. He was able to withstand uh, lions and bears. He was a very talented musician. He could play and even soothe the evil spirit that was in Saul. He could drive that away from Saul by his musical talent. He was a poet. He wrote many of the psalms, most of the psalms he wrote. And we know that he was uh, a very successful poet because the Psalms are some of the most precious parts of the Bible to us because of their poetry and the way that they describe our life, our, our current life and our life to come. We know that he was an excellent poet. He was a successful warrior. He was able to defeat Goliath and many of the other enemies of the people of God. He was leading them. He was in charge, commanded their army. Before he was king, and then as king, he was commanding them and destroying many of the surrounding nations. When they came to destroy Israel, David withstood, and he was a very successful warrior and general, and also a king. He practiced righteousness and truth. He did what he could. He was the highest court of the land as the king and the highest judge of the land. He practiced truth and righteousness. He saw and even performed many acts of of excellence and perfection and truth and righteousness. Whether it's natural skill or spiritual skill, David had it all. But he compares whatever he had and whatever he saw in other people. He says, I have seen a limit. I have seen a limit to all perfection. But compares it to God and His Word. Your commandment is exceedingly broad. Whatever he experienced and whatever he could do, he understands that he's nothing compared to God. That God's commandments and whatever they say about God himself are exceedingly broad. They're they're inscrutable. He is unable to understand and to figure out everything that's in the Word in comparison to about himself. Compared to God, he is nothing. In fact, he is unable to 
to figure it out. Notice it says in Isaiah chapter 40, Isaiah 40, verse 28. Do you not know, have you not heard, the everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth, does not become weary or tired? His understanding is inscrutable. His understanding is inscrutable. How is it that we're going to be able to teach God anything? Isaiah 40, Isaiah 40, verse 13. Who has directed the Spirit of the Lord, or as his counselor has informed him? Who will be able to give direction and instruction to the Spirit of God? Nobody. Nobody can. And even even Paul the Apostle, in Romans chapter 11, speaks of the same. Romans 11, 33. Oh, the depths of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are His judgments, and unfathomable His ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord, or who became His counselor? Or who has first given to Him, that it might be paid back to Him again? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. The Apostle Paul also says the same. That God's commandments, because of God and who he is, they are exceedingly broad. His commandments are, we cannot cannot fathom God. We cannot fathom everything that there is to know of God. Now, if this is the case, once more, David compares what he knows and experiences now compared to God. If that's the case with us, we know that one is gifted with this natural ability and another is gifted with another natural ability and humans had nothing to do with it. The parents had nothing to do with it. It had to be a miracle of God, an endowment of God, giving one child the ability to understand one subject better than another subject, and another child the ability to understand subject B compared to everybody else. Be able to construct something, be able to understand something, be able to say something, write something, whatever it is. It is God who does all this. If this is true, then why don't we make the comparison? And say, well, what about the things of God? God, therefore, must be greater than I. Let me seek for Him. God must be wiser than I. I will seek His wisdom. God must be more knowledgeable than I. I will seek His knowledge. God must be more powerful than I. I will seek His power. God is the one who can deliver me from my circumstances when I cannot deliver myself from death. So I will seek life in Him. God cannot, or I cannot give myself longevity past 70 or 80 years of life, but God can give me eternity. He can give me that life. I cannot forgive my own sins, but God can forgive me of my sins. I cannot give myself peace and comfort and assurance as to what I will experience upon death, but God can give me those things. This is what David is talking about, that God's commandment is exceedingly broad. Those things that we can just have a foretaste of now, God will give us to the full, according to His will, for all eternity. So let's do the same. Let's consider and compare constantly this life compared to the life to come. If we know where we are headed, we will make sure we're on the straight path to get there.
Let's be on that path. He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says. Amen. Our Lord, we ask you to equip us, empower us, and enable us to follow your will. May we, Lord, live this life in preparation for the next. In Jesus' name, amen.